scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul's reminder to the church in Ephesus of who they once were before Christ and who they are now. Let these words fill your heart with joy this morning. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, can God's children in the house this morning say, but now? But now. One more time. But now. Amen. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But now, this is the precious word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. So I have this remarkable burden of communication this morning. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? What I mean is that the task of communicating to you is to make known to you and to help you to see the importance of something that perhaps you have never seen its importance before. And that is hard. It is hard to do. I would say before I begin that if you were here last week, this sermon will look very similar to last week's in points in its application. And so I'll explain that as I go, but what I am convinced that you and I do not realize is how drastic the divide was in Paul's day and before between the Jews and the Gentiles. We don't get that. I personally did not grow up in the thick of the racial divide in our country I came a bit after that. I have read about it, watched movies about it. I can't imagine a world where the color of your skin dictated where you sat on a bus. That's unfathomable to me. I can't imagine a world where the color of your skin determined which water fountain you drank from. That's unreal. 
I can't imagine our church without blacks and whites, Hispanics, Asians, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, all kinds of people from all walks of life. It's unbelievable to me to try to imagine that I can't do it. I cannot imagine it. And yet, just not many years ago, our country lived and, and experienced that. And some of you may recall it. You may have been in the thick of it. In Paul's day and prior to Paul's time, Jews and Gentiles had no dealings with one another. When I use the word Gentile, I'm referring to everyone in this room. Every person in this room, unless you're a Jew, you fit. It doesn't matter the nationality. It doesn't matter your race. Any non-Jew is a Gentile. And so Paul here writes about a radical division between Jews and Gentiles that was religious in nature. It was uh, divisive. It was... um, uh, 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 the, the Jews uh, shouldn't have often mistreated the Gentiles. The Gentiles shouldn't have often mistreated the Jews. And he talks about this massive divide. Now, if you read the Old Testament, God clearly chose Israel. There's no doubt about that. But he never chose Israel to be an exclusive uh, uh, looking down on anyone else. No, Israel was chosen by his grace, period. There was nothing in the Israelites that caused God to look at them and go, hey, I want you. He simply chose them. And yet, as humans can do, they, they became religiously elite. Add to that the sin of the Gentiles. You may know or may not know that in Ephesus, where this book is being written, there was the temple to Artemis. Let me fill you in on what happened at that temple to Artemis. Artemis, sometimes called Diana was the goddess of fertility. She was probably the most worshipped deity in Asia and perhaps the world during Paul's time. Her worship involved hundreds of eunuch priests, virgin priestesses, and religious prostitutes. Worship rituals were very erotic. Ephesus was a sex-saturated city. Ephesus was considered the Mecca for the worship of Artemis. The temple built for her became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you were to see An image of Artemis in Paul's day, she would have many breasts, which were a symbol of her fertility. The temple was massive, given its great importance. Why did people worship Artemis? Well, if you 
thought perhaps you wouldn't have a child, worshiping her uh, should bring fertility, long life, sexual fulfillment, and protection during pregnancy and childbirth. If you're a Jew and you worship one God and one God alone, you look at something like that as absurd. And it was absurd, but it was very real. Last week, the sermon had three points, who we were, what God did, and who we are. This week, the sermon has three points, he, who we were, what Jesus did, and who we are. What is the difference? Last week is personal. It is you individually. This week is corporate. It is all those in the church. In the South, my points could be y'all, right? It refers to you plural, not you singular. Two, one through ten is you personally when you come to faith in Christ. Two, 11 through 22 is the church, is all of us together. Who were we? Gentiles. That's everybody in the room. Unless there's a Jew in the room, this, that's you. Who were we? Paul describes the condition of the Gentiles with these words, separated from Christ. At least the Jews in the Old Testament had the promise of a Messiah. We did not even, if you have been living then, there's no hope, there's no promise, there's no understanding of anything but the Greek gods or the Roman gods, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That means no possibility of relationship with God's chosen people, strangers to the covenants of promise. What were those? God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Moses, God's covenant with David. The Israelites had tucked away in their religious heritage that God was going to do something because he had promised to do it. All the Gentiles lived without any of those promises, having no hope without God in the world. Hopelessness. The absence of hope is a powerful thing. Let me share a couple of stories that may get on both sides of it. Elmer Bendiner tells the story of a B-17 bomber that flew a bombing mission in the Second World War over Germany. When it was flying its mission, it got pummeled with shells. As a matter of fact, several of those shells went into the fuel tank. This bomber did not explode. They were able to land it safely. So they began to investigate. How is it that this bomber could take on shells and, and not explode? How, how could that be? They discovered when they began to extract the shells from the bomber that several of them, uh, some of which had baited into the gas engine, to, into the gas tank, had no explosives in them. They found a note written in check in one of the shells. And the note said this, 
this is all we can do for you now. These Czech workers producing shells for Hitler's regime thought we cannot end the war, but we can put explosives in some shells and not put them in others. And this will be our part that we can do. They had hope that somehow what they did, who knows if they ever heard the rest of that story, that's hope alive and at work. Let's look at the reverse. On December 12th of 1927, an S-4 submarine was rammed by a ship off the coast of Massachusetts. There were 40 crew on board, and they quickly rushed in those cold, icy waters to rescue. 34 of them died. Six were still alive in the submarine. One of the rescuers in those icy waters made his way to the submarine. He thought he could hear a tapping, a Morse code. He put his helmet against the submarine and heard these words that he would later report back to his commander. The words were this, is there any hope? These men were losing hope. They lost their lives. They died. Someone has said we can live 40 days without food, eight days without water, four minutes without air, but only a few seconds without hope. Paul describes you and me collectively. All of us, same boat, same sinking submarine, tapping on the wall is there any hope? We all alienated, all apart from Christ, all dying, all headed to an eternity without Christ, tapping out in Morse code. Is there any hope? Who we were, number two, what Jesus did. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the two key words are, but God. Uh, in these verses, the two key words are, and you should underline them, but now. But now. I love that tiny little conjunction when it follows bad news. Don't you? Never like it when it follows good news. But when it follows bad news, the word but is a welcome, a welcome turn of events. But now. Uh, Paul writes, you who once were far off have been brought near. That phrase far off occurs twice in this passage. One of the things I do when I study and prepare to preach a sermon to you is to look at every single significant word in the passage. 
once I've done that in its original language, one of the tasks I have is to find it elsewhere in the Bible because one of the things that the Reformation taught us was that the Bible really informs the Bible. That words, when they show up one place and when they show up another place, ought to be tied together. And so what did I discover in my study? That this word far off, this word far off shows up in one of the most favored, in one of the most favored parables of Jesus. Far off. It is the word that describes where the prodigal son ended up. He ended up in a far off country. You see a picture on the screen. I have the privilege of teaching at Montreal College, teaching New Testament this semester. This is the building in which I teach, teach on the bottom floor, but it's called the Chapel of the Prodigal. This is a fresco. It's painted large if you've ever been there. It's remarkable. It's painted large. Imagine this right here at, gosh, I don't know, 15 feet maybe. Uh, it is tall and, and, and wide, maybe even more. Notice what is happening in the story of the prodigal, if you are unfamiliar, there is a man who has two sons, and, and one son goes to his father and says, listen, give me everything coming to me, and he takes his inheritance. What you may not know is in that culture, which would be similar today, if one of your kids says that, they're basically wishing you were dead. Give me what I should get when you die. And so that boy received that and he went to a far off country. Some of you are living there today. You're in a far off country. God is a million miles from you. Your sin has created a, a, a great degrees of separation between you and God. He went to a far off country and he wasted all of his inheritance. He came to himself when he found himself slopping hogs. I've done that before. It'll make you come to yourself. <laughs> Promise. It smells bad. Bacon tastes good down the road, but the slopping is no fun. And so he came to himself and he said, what am I doing? And if you read the parable, he rehearses a prayer to God that he's going to pray and he uh, or to, to his dad. And he comes home to his dad and he launches into this rehearsed speech to his dad. And his dad cuts him off. He cuts him off. And notice what his dad is doing. Look how emaciated he is. Sin will take you farther than you intended to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay, and cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Notice how emaciated the son is as the father holds him. He's thrilled to have his boy home. Everybody's gathered around. You see the older son to the right looking on in disdain. See, one of the major misconceptions of the story of the prodigal is that it isn't the story of the prodigal son. Why? There are two of them. There's a prodigal. The, the word prodigal means wasteful, uh, uh, extravagant. 
There's one who is at home who wastes his father's love. There's one who went away who wastes his father's inheritance. So if it isn't the story of the prodigal son, then what is it a story of? It's the story of the prodigal father. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Because I think in most of our minds, prodigal means lost. It doesn't. It means extravagant. It's an extravagant father who after his son has wasted every single thing he's had in a far off country, he says, come home, boy. And when he does, he says, bring a robe, bring a ring, put shoes on his feet. For this, my son was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he is found. Let's kill the fattened calf. This is extravagant. What kind of dad runs in that culture to meet his son, to embrace him, pigsty and all? This kind of dad. And that is what the prodigal father did by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. It is an extravagant gift, one that you and I never deserve. Why would we, the Gentiles who are far off, be brought near when we were far off? The only way is that we have a God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. Amen? Oh, what love. The Father has bestowed upon us. John, in his letter, would well up and say that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Wow. What Jesus did is he brought those of us who were far off close in. For he himself is our peace. He didn't bring peace. He brought himself, which was peace. What is peace? That word is uh, very uh, misused today. Peace is well-being in the widest sense. Peace in the Old and New Testament, you have to look at the whole, is harmony between individuals. It is wholeness, particularly within human relationships. So the question comes, how is Jesus our peace? Well, he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What was the dividing wall? <clears throat> the Jews had a law, and they, they tried to keep it, and they were convinced you and I never could. They were right. We cannot. Jesus annulled the law. That's what Paul says here. Say, what do you mean? Jesus certainly did not abolish the moral law as a standard of behavior but he did abolish it as a way of salvation. Don't miss that. He, he, he didn't say, oh yeah, it's fine to go murder now. No, he didn't abolish the moral law as a standard of behavior. He just abolished it as the way of salvation. Keeping it would not save you. John Stott says, but Jesus himself perfectly obeyed the law in his life and in his death bore the consequences of our disobedience. Colossians 3.11, Jesus created a new humanity. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, Paul says he, he made a new man, a new humanity. This is, this is not... A renovated house. This is a brand new building. This is a brand new humanity. That's the church. 
I'm afraid we've completely underestimated the church. Please hear me. This is huge. The church is not an organization. Not at all. Should we be organized? Oh, absolutely. But we are not an organization. The church is not the place you bring your kids and you hope that the church is going to save them. No, the church isn't that. Not at all. Not at all. We'll look in a moment at who we are. This is huge. We, we fail to see this. Jesus reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God. Armitage Robinson, I love this quote, says, Christ in his death was slain, but the slain was a slayer too. He killed the hostility between us and God. And then Jesus preached peace. Not only did he become our peace on the cross and killing the hostility between us and God and between us and the Jews, but when he resurrected, he went to Peter and he went to others and he preached peace. Who we are then. There's a lot here that's going to fly up on the screen. I'll put all of my notes on my blog as soon as I finish the second service. Uh, we are citizens of God's kingdom. All of us who belong to Christ are citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 19, so then you are no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. I love how D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that medical doctor turned pastor in England in the last century, said, we no longer live on a passport, but we really have our birth certificates. We really do belong Your citizens. Number two, we are children in God's family. We are citizens. These are all metaphors, three metaphors here that are used to describe who you and I now are. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Number two, we are children in God's family. We now all, converted Jews and uh, Christians alike, have the same father we are children in God's family do you know what this means I tell you when I see this most pronounced is when I go to Africa and I encounter believers in Africa and there I am with them and they don't speak my language and they don't uh, understand the customs but there is this connection between them that is unexplainable why we got the same dad that's why we have the same father. My brother is sitting here this morning. Uh, Greg and I have a connection between the two of us because we're siblings. But, but we have connections all over the world with believers everywhere. We are children in God's family. Verse 19, and members of the household of God. Number three, we are stones in God's temple. All right, so you see these three images, citizens of God's kingdom. No longer need a passport. You got your citizenship. Number two, children in God's family. You got a mom. You got a dad when you're in a family. Well, when you're in God's family, God is your heavenly father. You got brothers and sisters all over the planet. It's incredible. Go, go to Ecuador and worship as we do. It's remarkable. Number three, we are stones 
in God's temple. Verse 20 through 22 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, so this imagery then, we've got imagery of a country with the king and citizens, and we're the citizens. We've got imagery of a family like the one we saw on the screen where the faraway son comes home, and we've got a family. But this imagery is of a building, and the building is made of stone, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The building is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. All right, so who are they? It's Paul. It's John. It is Matthew. It is James. It is built on that foundation. Do you know what I find fascinating? It is built on the foundation of teachers. Please hear me. You cannot worship what you do not know. You cannot worship what you do not know. If you if you never come to worship or you seldom come to worship or you don't plug into a life group, if you do not get into God's word, your worship will never rise above the level of your knowledge. It just won't. You cannot worship what you do not know. And some of you, I, I love you, but your worship is here because your knowledge is here. Your worship is here because what you know about God is down here. And if you're going to worship more, you've got to know more. If you're going to worship more, you've got to grow more. You will not worship beyond what you know. And so this building is built on the teaching of the apostles. Notice Christ's role. He's the cornerstone. Well, what does the cornerstone do? Two things. It keeps the building in line. In that day, it was the very square stone at the corner that kept a building in line. That's what it does. I have no concept of how to do that. None. I, I couldn't keep a birdhouse in line. Bill Mintink is laughing. Because I still remember and think often of when Bill came to my house to, to roof my little shed, which I tried to build with Wendy's help. We tried. And when, when we tried to put shingles on that thing, they were ever which away. And Bill said, Jerry, just to be glad that should a plane fly over, there's a tree over this thing. And nobody can see it. It was that crooked. I didn't know what a square was, didn't use one. Just kind of eyeballed that sucker, right? <laughs> Not a good call at all. Jesus is this cornerstone, and by him, this wall goes out, and by him, this wall goes out. That's his first role. His second role is these are Jews, and these are Gentiles, and they join together in Christ. He brings the two together into one building. That's what he does. Unless the church is constantly and securely related to Christ, the church's unity will disintegrate and its growth either stop 
or go wild. A cornerstone in that day, one has been excavated that was 39 feet tall. We're not talking about a tiny little stone. When Jesus is called cornerstone, that's a hefty thing. That's why Christ, one of our values at Grace, is Jesus over everything. Everything. If he isn't front and center, we close the doors and go home. Amen? It is all for him. It is all to him. It is all about him. It is all from him. It flows around him. It is Christ, 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 Christ. It is he we worship. It is he we celebrate. It is he we love. It is he who has redeemed us into a dwelling place for God. So that is why, and this is going to blow some of your minds, this building is not sacred. It is metal and concrete. That's all. That's all it is. It is not sacred. If a storm came through here and ripped this off its foundations, the church will be alive and well. Amen? This is not the church. If you've come from a tradition where if you were to move this this far, people get ripped out of their you know, mind, or you take this and replace it with that, and people are like, oh my gosh, how can you worship if you don't have like the king's throne behind you, you know? Or I'm used to having that in remembrance of me table down there. How in the world are you going to do church without the in remembrance of me table? Come on, folks. The, the temple is the people. The church is the people. It is you. It is me. God is not tied to holy buildings but to holy people. He is tied to holy people, and the church gathers here, but the church scatters out there. And should the buildings just go up in flames, the church would still be alive and well. Come with me to Africa. They just got their building under, you know, the walls up thanks to a gift from this church. They just got their walls up. When I first started going to Africa, I would preach under that large mango tree, and those believers would gather around and we would worship and God saved people and people were being baptized in a country that's 95% Muslim. God isn't tied to holy buildings. He's tied to holy people. He's tied to people like you and me who, who he indwells and he lives in. I need to calm down. <laughs> but he is. So what we're going to do, how in the world should we end this time together? I'm going to ask elders and wives, whoever's helping, to come in, uh, uh, now. And we are going to take together the Lord's Supper. Um, one of the things I love about the family that, that I married into is they all can cook. Every last one of them. It's amazing. They're amazing cooks. Last night, nothing fancy. We just grilled some charcoal burgers. And I know some of you haven't had breakfast. I apologize. But we just did and sat out on our carport, had a meal together as family. I love that. This is 
our family meal right here. This is it. If you don't belong to Christ, just pass, pass it past you. If you don't belong to Christ, just, just send it on and nobody will judge you. This juice and these crackers are for those who know Christ. And we take this to say, God, we want to be your holy people. And we remember what it is that you have done for us. So what I ask you to do is we're going to play softly some music as this passes. As they do so, if there's any sin, any sin that comes to mind, Scripture is clear, confess that and repent of it. I'm not trying to scare you, but Scripture makes no bones about you, you shouldn't take this if you have unrepentant sin in your life. If there's anyone in the family in here that you're at odds with, either take it because you're going to go to them or don't take it until you go to them. Scripture's clear about that. As this passes, take some moments to reflect on your own life, to pray, to seek God.